We're going to continue through our walk through the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at these ten verses. As we looked at last week, we had that mini pastor's conference where Paul was just at the bottom of his rope, and God encouraged him, and those same encouragements are for all of us. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 18 when it, when it says this in chapter 18. So Paul, have, and I'm just going to insert some context in between those words. So as I read from the, the NASB, my brain is going to color commentate because of our, 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 our historical context here. So if you're like, what, what version is he reading from? It's mine. <laughs> Paul, having remained in Corinth, many days longer, took leave of his brothers and sisters and he put out to the sea of Syria and and with him were his close personal biblical friends because they were such an encouragement, Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria, he had his hair cut. How many needed to know that? Anyone at all? They're like, when does this guy, this is his first haircut according to the word of God. All right. He got his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and they left him there. Now he himself entered the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him, stay for a bit longer, he said, no, I will not give my consent, which seems odd, but taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you if God wills it. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed in Caesarea, he went and he greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region of Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Now, a Jew by the name of Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus And he was mighty in the scriptures, and this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted, by the way, only the baptism of John. And he began uh, to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside quietly, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to get across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples and gave him a reference letter. You're going to want to welcome this guy because he is a gifted communicator about the things of Christ and the way of the Lord. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who believe through grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that the one they have been waiting for has already come, died, and rose again. Let's ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand. Without your Spirit, O God, we can't. I pray that my friends and family would love you more when we're done with this text. Know you more. Desire you more. That our acceptance of the gospel does not stop there. But we live it. 
I confess my sins, my purposeful sins in front of these people, Lord. I am not worthy of this gift. I pray that you would use me while I am still in the process of knowing you more. For your glory and your honor. And Father, I pray this and I ask this in your son's precious name. And if you are thankful to be here, say amen. Amen. All right. How many here are old enough or have been in the church long enough to remember this button? Anyone at all? (laughs) Two. Literally two. Normally I exaggerate. Literally two people. That's really good. Now I know what you're thinking. Pastor, you make words up like this every week on accident. And to that, I say, it hurts. It hurts a little bit. You get up here every morning and you're not a morning person. Having a wedding every week of your life on Saturday night, which I enjoy. Can we all just stop getting married and having babies, huh? Pastor needs a break, all right? Secondly, I didn't make this one up. Allow me to show you what this means. It is a pseudo-acronym that means this. Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. How many here would say the church needs this button? Anyone at all? We need this button. I don't. You do. No, I'm teasing. I do too. I need a big one. So when people are a bit judgy, which I know is foreign to us Baptists, When people are a bit judgy with you or showing you no grace, just look at them straight in the eye and with all intellectual intelligence say, Pumifa for me. Because truth of the matter, this is what the primary point of the passage is. You know, as I was reading this passage, it was filled with uh, many questions than there were answers. Even as I read several different theologians and commentaries from different backgrounds and and approaches, they all disagreed with each other, which puts a cold sweat on a pastor's forehead. How in the world am I going to teach this passage of the Scripture when people infinitely smarter than I don't agree? Who will I side with? They took all different cultural and biblical positions, and I found myself in an intellectual wilderness. How do I exegete a passage that produces more questions each time I read it? And then it hit me. It's not about the questions. It's not about the questions and it's not about the answers. Here it is. It is about the pattern in the process. Luke has given us a flyover of a pattern in a process. Luke raises a lot of questions here that he doesn't seem interested in answering at all. One writer said this. Here's the questions that just pour out of this. What was Paul's vow? Why did he take it? Was it right for him to take a vow? Should Christians take vows? Why did Paul leave Ephesus when people were interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why did his visit to Jerusalem be so short? Was Apollos a Christian or not? Did Priscilla lead him to the Lord? What happened to Timothy and Silas? They're just gone. The contemporary approach to this is Timothy and Silas has ghosted us. They're gone. 
They just simply, they were never there. He doesn't talk about them. Luke just doesn't seem to care about these details, and then it hit me, because the details are not the purpose of the writing here. The purpose of the writing is, can we just close in a word of prayer? That's as close as tongues as you will hear from this pulpit, all right? That's not an attack. That's just a declaration, all right? Luke is showing us that as believers, here it is, we are all in a process. Amen, church? We're all in a process. We are all in different places in our walk with God. And because of this, we need to be patient. We need to be loving. We need to be graceful with one another. Because here's the point that Luke is trying to give us. God uses people who are in the process of growth. He does not use people who have arrived. Amen? How many people are a little annoyed with those who think they've arrived? Anyone at all? We will see this universal and overarching truth in this text. We will see that Paul is in a process. We're going to see that Apollos is in a process. You see the pattern here? We'll see that Priscilla and Apollos are all in, and Aquila are in the process of spiritual growth. So with this in mind, that Luke is not trying to give us a concordance of answers to all of these fine, intricate details, but rather examples of people who still haven't arrived and they're growing in their walk with Christ. So let's pick it up here. Now the first thing I want you to see here in this text are the words, he had his hair cut. This is what my father used as a proof text to make sure my ear, my hair did not touch my ears. I'm joking, he didn't. But he could have, alright? He, he had a haircut for he was keeping a vow. Now, it's important to understand that Paul knew he was under no obligation to fulfill any old covenant rituals or vows or traditions. Paul knew he was no under uh, old traditions here. Yet it appears within this text internally that he took a Nazarite vow. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Numbers chapter 6. Or maybe it wasn't a full Nazarite vow, but it had, it had a, a, a private vow with Nazarite Jewish trappings to it. Luke doesn't answer the question. At least he doesn't seem to. Paul likely made this vow because of his thankfulness for the Lord's protection in Corinth. When he was at the end of his rope, the father said, don't, don't, don't stop talking, don't be silent, share the gospel, for no one will harm you in this city. So maybe he's thanking the Lord for the protection. You'll find that in Acts 18.10. If, there is a, if this is a Nazarite vow, by the way, he would not be allowed to cut his hair or drink any juice that comes from a vine, i.e. grape juice or wine. Which, by the way, if it is an Azurite vow, and he is in the early church who does observe communion, this would keep him from observing the Lord's table with the church. I don't know. That's not the point. What leads us to believe that it is likely a Nazarite vow is that it appears that once he cuts his hair, he is committed to go to Jerusalem. Now, why does this matter? It does, because we have a theme here, the process. When you cut your hair in a Nazarite vow, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that you had 30 days to present that hair in the temple as an offering to the Lord. I took this vow, I took the evidence of this vow, and which, by the way, if you had male, what's it called, male pattern baldness, I don't know what the evidence would be, all right? 
But he took this head hair and he has to get it to Jerusalem and, and offer it as a offering. When we see the words, he was in the process of keeping this vow right there in the purple and the blue and the yellow. It tells us he's not only, he's not only done with the process, but it required that he get to Jerusalem. In fact, it says here, when he landed in Caesarea, points to this truth, this urgency, this likelihood. Because this is, by the way, Caesarea is the port of call for travelers who are on their way to Jerusalem. This is where you go if you're heading to Jerusalem. Now, when you add the words, he went up and he went down, it's almost certain This is a reference to Jerusalem, which, by the way, is located on Mount Zion. You went up the mountain, you went down the mountain. Now, you may say, why are you telling me this? Just bear with me here, all right? Now, on top of that, if you have the Western Texas Receptus in your laps, which is the King James Version or the New King James Version, how many here have the Texas Receptus on your laps right now? All right, we got a few right here. It literally adds the words... I must by all means keep the feast that cometh in Jerusalem. It's right there in the text. Now, why do I tell you all this background? Because it seemed like we were so excited and we were really worshiping today. I really wanted to bring it right down, all right? No, no, no. Because first it tells us why Paul, here's the important part. Here's why we have to know this. Because this tells us why Paul, when they asked him to stay where is it? I'm looking for it. When he asked him to stay, maybe, maybe I don't have it. Here we go. When he asked him to, to stay a little longer, he would not consent. Yeah, there it is in the orange. Why? Because the clock is ticking. He's got 30 days. Would you stay with us? I can't. I just cut my hair. I took a vow. I have to get to Jerusalem. I can't stay with you. If this is a Nazarite vow, which contextually points to that, Paul had to say no to people in Ephesus who were, by the way, open to the gospel and the discipleship of Jesus Christ because he had to get to Jerusalem. Here it is. Paul may have passed up an open door because he's trying to keep a Jewish vow that he has taken even though it was a vow that he was no longer required to take. Because the question Why would Paul do this? Here it is. Because Paul is still in a process of growing in Jesus Christ. He's in the process from leaving the Jewish way of thinking to a new covenant way of thinking. My friends, Paul is by all definitions one of the most mature and gifted followers of Jesus Christ. Yet he never graduated He never ended the process of growing in Christ. In fact, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, when he wrote back to the Lydia the seller of purple, he said to her, not that I have obtained it or have already arrived, but I press on so that I may hold on to that which has laid hold by Jesus Christ. So with that in mind right there, I just want you to hold on to that because we're going to hold it and we're going to bring it with us. And what I want you to hold on to this is Paul is in the process of maturing in Christ. And by the way, so are you. And by the way, so am I. And so is the person next to you. And so is the person who failed you. And so is the person who hurt you. And so is the person who helped you. So is that person you're judging. So is the pastor. None of us have it all together. So take that with you and bring it into the next part of the process. 
Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, he was an eloquent man. This means he was smart. He was learned. He was educated. In fact, so much to the point that Paul called him eloquent. He was an eloquent, educated man. By the way, this word eloquent here is the only time it appears in the New Testament. And it means he was good with words and logic. He was good with words and logic. Now, when you add that, that he was good with words and logic, and find myself where I am in my notes. Here we are. All right, I like this here, okay? He's from Alexandria, which, by the way, is the home of the greatest library the world had ever known during that time. It had over 400,000 scrolls and books in its library. How many here have ever watched National Treasure? Anyone at all? I watched it for devotions on Saturday. And you remember, they finally go through, which, by the way, apparently no one's capable of dying in that movie. It was like a rerun of the A-Team. How many remember that? <laughs> no one dies. It's not in our text. I'm sorry. But you remember, they finally went down to that pit, and he, like, he does all the tricks, and he gets down there, and the first thing is his... The, 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 he had a girlfriend she pulls out a scroll and she goes this is from the library of anyone alexandria which by the way was burned and pillaged and all that so if you ever work from the library of alexandria you're set for life this is where he's from not national treasure from alexandria all right and he's educated there now by the way it is the epicenter of Greek and Hebrew culture and languages. This is where these two tributaries came together. Just In fact, this is really interesting. For those of you who are geeks and nerds, not only is it the epicenter of the Hebrew languages, in fact, this is where the Septuagint was created. This is where the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek. And if you're really a big nerd, it's where the LXX comes from. How many are excited? This is where he's from. Now, this is important because we are going to see a process of humility in this man. Check this out. So remember, he's from Harvard Law. As it comes to the Old Testament, and pretty soon, a tent maker is going to correct him. Isn't it fun to watch Scripture come alive like that? Now, check this out. Here we go. Greek version, LXX, we got to move. What time is it? <gasps> Wait, I don't have a watch on. What time is it? Quarter two. Quarter two. All right, buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> it is with this understanding that we now understand the words, he was mighty in the scriptures. He is mighty in the scriptures. In fact, the Greek word here for mighty is dumanos, where, where we get the word dynamite. He was powerful. He was eloquent. He was educated. And of course, he was educated in the city with the largest library, which created the Septuagint, the LXX. No wonder Luke can say that he is instructed in the way of the Lord, which is a Jewish idiom to say he knew the Jewish ways. My friends, it is with all this understanding that we can fully appreciate Luke's summary of this man. He says he is fervent in spirit. 
By the way, this means he is full of enthusiasm. He is full of strong emotion. He boils over with love. Lloyd-Jones summarizes this perfectly when he says, Apollos was, and I love this, he was logic on fire. Oh, to have that title. Logic on fire. If I may, this is the desire of my heart. I want to be logic on fire. I want to be intellectually and theologically sound and emotively on fire. I hate it when people dichotomize the style and the approach of a pastor. Is he a teacher or is he a preacher? My friends, should we not be both? Teach the word of God to our minds and preach it into our hearts? Should not every preacher be logic on fire? Now, now you may say, well, that's kind of arrogant. No, I'm just quoting someone else who quoted someone else who quoted someone else who quoted someone else. We're not all that bright. I think it was one Puritan that, that said, what? Puritans were bright. Okay, I'm not diminishing Puritans here. I'm diminishing me with a Puritan, all right? Uh, he said that, uh, that to preach the word of God without passion is to lie. I want you to notice one more thing. He is speaking and teaching accurately about the things concerning Jesus. Who could ask for more than this? Who could ask for more of this passionate, logical, educated, all this stooge? He got Jesus right. But there's one problem. He's only acquainted with the baptism of John, which is the baptism of repentance. Do you see a problem here? I've had churches who have called me to candidate at their place and they have said the words, and, and, and I've shared this story before, so bear with me, I'll make it quick. They'd say, we'd like you to come and just, just teach about Jesus, but don't bring all the doctrine and theology with that. What? What, what, what Jesus, pray tell me, would we teach of if we carved off all the doctrine around him? We would teach no Jesus. It reveals him. By the way, the church closed their doors. Notice this here. It would have been very confusing to teach about Jesus accurately and then just offer the baptism of John. Rather than the baptism of Jesus Christ, this produced a very dangerous problem. And here is the problem. A very passionate, gifted, smart orator of the scriptures who lacked understanding. Boldness coupled with inadequate, with an inadequate grasp of the Lord's way is dangerous. Boldness without understanding is dangerous. Because gifted speakers can convince people to follow their own interpretation of things rather than what God has said. And it is the job of a pastor to herald, to echo what God has said, not what we think we wanted to say. How many gifted Orators of the word of God have pulled the bride of Christ into the slop of pigs. The point is this. Apollos, as gifted as he was, here it is, is still in a what class? Process. He's growing. 
He's in the process of growing and maturing in his faith. Now hold on to that. Paul's in a process. Apollos, logic on fire from Alexandria, is in a process. Now hold on to that because we're going to see a Christian couple. Which, by the way, when I first came here, I thought Priscilla and Aquila were both women. And I said they were married. Which created a, a contextual difficulty for the rest of the passage. So I'd like to correct that. Priscilla is the woman. Aquila is the man. How many here would be upset if your parents named you as a man, Aquila? Anyone at all? I mean, can we just feel for this man? I do. I've never known him. I feel bad for him. What were you talking about? Oh, yeah. They're here. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard, God, it's up there. Apollos passionately teaching with insufficient knowledge. They both looked at each other. You ever do that? You ever give your spouse or your significant other or close friend the stink eye, just like boom, like that? Like, we have a problem here, Houston. We have a problem here, Ephesus. They were amazed at his knowledge. They were amazed at his ability, but he was lacking. So they did what any good, godly person would do. First, they went and talked to a group of other people about it. That's step number one. Then they made it into a prayer concern within their small group. That's step number two. You sanctify the gossip. Then you boldly co-write a letter. Anonymously. (laughs) Under the conditions of anonymity, you co-write a letter with others to Apollos, and then you openly confront him and say, others agree with me. I've read. My friends, people in the church often congratulate themselves with their boldness without any discernment. So let me say this as clear as I can, and I'll say it to myself first because I've been guilty of this. I do not speak to you because I've arrived. I speak to you because I am learning from my own failures. Boldness without discernment. Boldness without discernment is much like nothing more than loud foolishness. Boldness without discernment can be loud foolishness. But look what they did. They took him aside privately and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila understand that the Christian life is a what class? It's a what? Process. They too were taught by Paul and slowly learned in Corinth. While everyone was Corinthizing themselves, hope that context fills your mind from last week, as, as they are surrounded by Corinthized people, they grow with Paul. So they whisper to one another and say, rather than blow him up, rather than blow him up in his process of maturity, let's privately help him. After all, isn't that... It's not that he is inaccurate about Jesus. It's just that his knowledge is incomplete. He's not wrong. He's just incomplete. They show him gentle channels of divine grace. Grab that word grace because we're going to add it to the word process now. Because this is not about answering minute questions. It is about conduct, process, and pattern. I want you to take the word process that we took with Paul and we took with Apollos, and we're taken with Priscilla and Aquila, who is a man and a wife who are married from Corinth. And now we're going to add it here, and we're going to add the word grace, graceful process. 
Now I want you to notice one more thing, and then we'll wrap it up here shortly. The vast majority of the time, Priscilla names precedes her husband's name. Priscilla's name precedes her husband's name nearly 90% of the time in the Word of God. Now that is an interesting writing style for this time period. Every person I've ever read says this. It indicates she was more knowledgeable, more articulate than the two, and likely was a more mature and stronger believer than her own husband. And I know what we're thinking. Impossible! She was. Now let me, let me test your knowledge here. What did this couple do for a living? What did they do? They made tents. Another way to translate it is they worked with leather. Now I want you to contrast that with who Apollos is. Okay? She is a tent maker. He is a tent maker. Now let this explode and bring with you the two words process and grace. Put yourself in Apollo's shoes. You are a trained, highly educated, esteemed in, uh, in, in, in educated in Alexandria. He has read more books than they have mended tents. Apollos is eloquent. He is educated. He is a gifted orator. He, he is described as logic on fire. And within this culture, let me just throw the trump card down. He's a man. And along comes a woman tent maker from Corinth. And allow all that context to backfill our minds. Oh, to know the word of God. Does not the word of God explode when we see it in its context? Amen? There's a huge thing here for us. She is a tent maker from immoral Corinth. Could she be of any lower status than this man? And by the way, she would have done the, the uh, contextually, it points to that she did the most talking with him. Do you know how many men in that age, much less our age today, wouldn't given her the time of day or worse, said that she is not allowed to instruct him? My friends, not only is there nothing wrong with a woman teaching a man in this context, it is redeemable. It is Colossians chapter 3. Again, the prohibition in the Bible of women teaching men in 1 Timothy 2 is in the context of the authoritative leadership role of an elder when the congregation meets publicly for worship. It is not a command or instruction that men cannot learn or be instructed by women. In fact, we see this here. Apollos knew he was in a process. This gifted teacher, preacher, and scholar sits at the feet of a lowly tent-making woman from Corinth because he understands, like Paul, here it is, none of us have ever arrived. There is not a person in this room you can't learn from. There is not a person in this room that I can't learn from. Regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their status, may we be filled with godly humility like Apollos and grace like, like Priscilla and Aquila. And because of Apollos' humility and Priscilla's grace, and look what happens. It multiplies when one believer in a process shows grace to another pe- person in process who shows another. It just multiplies. 
Apollo left and went across to Achaia. Now look at the text here. And he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now, this ought to be fun. The subject of grace here within the original language can be taken two ways. The Greek grammar is unclear. It's ambiguous. It could mean these two things. They believed through grace. We are saved through grace. All right, by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. They were saved through grace or he helped through grace those who believed, which, by the way, is the position of John Calvin. Now, which is it? Which is it? We have to know, right? Here it is. It's both. It's both. Sometimes we get the uh, false choices in our life, like you have to be this and you have to be that, because if you're not, if you're both, you're wrong. No, no, they're both right. Because here it is: Luke is telling us the means of salvation, or he is telling that Apollos served these believers through grace. Based on this context, I think it's both. No one believes in Jesus except through grace, and no one serves effectively apart from grace. Well, that fits good. Apollos understands that those he was helping was in a what? Talk to me, class. A process. So he showed them grace. Aquila showed him, and it kept multiplying. But what I want you to notice is this last point. Last point means we're almost done, all right? It doesn't. (laughs) It's the last point. It's just the longest point. So... Show me grace and let it multiply. No. I got like a half a page, so here we go. Last point. Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos grow. And in turn, Apollos helped others grow. And it is here that we come full circle. Now we can bring everything together because that's the point, right? Any good teacher is going to bring you somewhere, study it, and bring you right back to where you started. And then let the answer come out. Here it is. We are, uh, where am I? No one has arrived. Not Paul, who is struggling from time to time to shedding his Jewish heritage. Not Apollos, who, while gifted in his ability and knowledge, still needed to grow in his understanding. Not the couple of tent makers who showed grace because they were showed grace by Paul. My friends, we are all in different stages of our walk and growth in Jesus Christ. Let us, in grace, meet each other where we are at. This idea that we should all be in the same place is a lie from our adversary whispered into the ear of the collective church to cause spiritual hiding and division. Let me say that again. Spiritual hiding and division. The idea that a young babe in Christ should be hammered with judgment and scorn because they conduct themselves differently than a mature believer is ludicrous. When my kids were little babies, they cried. They still cry. But when they were little babies, and so do I, by the way, we would feed them when they cried. We didn't rebuke them. We didn't yell at them. When they threw their bottle across the floor and threw their, what were those little rings that were in like potatoes, or not potato sauce, ugh, uh, spaghetti sauce, what were those? Or, Spaghettios! When they flung their spaghettios all over the white counters. We didn't say, you're a failure. (laughs) You must not be my child. 
When they were in grade school, we expected them not to throw their SpaghettiOs. We asked them and told them they needed to set the table, help with dinner. But we also provided food and assisted with them, instructed them, helped them, yelled at them, screamed them, threatened them to the inch of their life, and we got the table set. Like any good parent does. We didn't demand that they cook the dinner. (laughs) They weren't there yet. By the way, my son Titus, excellent cook. I put on 10 pounds because of him. I hold him responsible. We didn't demand that they cook dinner as a young child, nor did we starve them to death if they didn't clean the bowl good enough. Now when my sons who are adults, and I'll keep it plural even though I'm primarily talking about one, but if I don't use their name, I don't have to give them $5. So my plural sons, <laughs> as adults, cry, or call, cry, they call and they say, I'm hungry, bring me food. I tell them, you have a car. You have a job. You have money Go get your own stinking food. And then Amy circumvents that and brings them food. Because she's the nurturer. I don't know what that makes me, but she's the nurturer. My point here is this. You're like, yo, there's a point. Yes. I would have never told my sons or my daughters when they were babies, get in the car and drive and purchase your own food. Or vice versa, nor would I tell my, my adult son, go ahead and sling those spaghettios against the counter. Because process. And we would say, of course we wouldn't. And that only makes sense. Yet do we not do the opposite in the church today? I'm going to read to you an actual, real, unedited letter. The only, na- the only thing I took out of this letter is the name. From a 42-year-old woman who wrote about the church she grew up in that did not allow people the process of growing in Christ and showed no grace. So let's go ahead and wrinkle this up. And here it is. Real human being, 42 years of age. Her name is not Susie Q. Word for word. It's ironic that the greatest commandment according to the Bible isn't to never wear a skirt above the knee or to listen to music about a beat with a beat or not to go to movies The greatest commandment is to love God. And I still struggle with that because my church drilled into me as a young age that God is angry. And if I mess up, he's going to kill me in a car wreck and take away my family. My Sunday school teachers made sure I learned that God was always displeased with me and ready to strike me down. I'm 42 and the only thing the church gave me was a bitter, critical spirit. All my pastors and all my teachers who preached that we were saved by grace never showed me any. You lied, you must not be saved. You disrespected your parents or teachers, you must not be saved. Wore something other than culottes, must not be saved. That ought to tell you a little bit about the church, right? New rule, we're all wearing culottes next week, all right? And if you don't, you're not. That's right. Wore something other than culottes, must not be saved. I must have prayed the sinner's prayer a hundred times. How sad is that? Here it is. I was beaten as a child for being a child. Where is God's grace in that? 
my friends, we are at the end. Spiritually speaking, do we punish babes in Christ for being babes? Do we rip into toddlers for being toddlers? My friends, we're all in a process. This doesn't mean that we ignore sin. It doesn't mean that we don't push each other to grow in areas, but it certainly would affect how we lovingly approach one another when we do miss the mark. Just because we fail or spiritually skin our knees does not mean that God hates us or that we are not saved or that He is angry and vengeful. It means that we are human beings in desperate need of loving and graceful help. Rather than rejecting a person who's early in their walk with Christ for struggling with their sexuality, let us love and embrace them and walk with them so that they would find joy in living out God's moral purity rather than judging someone for addiction. Wrap our arms around them and say, do you need, you don't need to hide. I know this pain. I will walk with you. Rather than telling someone they must not be saved, let us tell them about the joy of sanctification. Rather than creating an atmosphere where everyone who needs help must hide. We create an environment when those who are hiding feel free to get help. Oh, oh, may we hear this, my friends. Let us be people who are patient and kind and forgiving towards one another because truth be told, we are all in different places in our walk with God. And what we need in the church today in our relationships with one another is not the hammer of content, but rather the balm of God's grace. Grace, amen? Because that's what he did for us. I was dead. I was lost. I was blind. I was a leper. What would have happened if Apollos, to Apollos, if Priscilla just ripped him publicly with no grace? What would have happened if Apollos said, I'm not listening to a woman from Corinth who only knows how to fold leather? What would have happened to Paul's ministry if he didn't see the need to grow in his walk with God? What would have happened to the church if everyone pretended that everything was fine? (laughs) Probably the very same thing that is killing the church today. My friends, we are all in a process. Some people do need to be saved. Some are saved and need to grow up. But regardless of the process, we are to show love and grace and truth for all of us wear the same button. Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. God uses people who are in the process of growth. Let us never throw each other away. I invite you back tonight where we'll be studying this exact same text because there's just too much. Its depths cannot be plumbed. And we are going to be asking a question. Does our heritage, which is good, does our heritage ever hinder, which is bad? Does our heritage ever hinder our purpose? 
It did for Paul. And my guess is it does for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, may each and every one of us be gracious, patient, and kind. Because until we see your face, we have not arrived. May this church be submissive to one another as we submit to you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Bless these people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. And go Lions.